Last week, we introduced the book of Ruth, and this week we're going to jump into this story. Short little book, bridge narrative between Judges and uh, the book of Samuel. And we talked about the different themes in Ruth last week, and... um, different placement that it has in Jewish Bibles and in Christian Bibles and why. So if you missed that, catch the podcast or watch the YouTube video. But we're going to get into it. Chapter 1, Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So this sets the stage. This tells us a lot just in this one little verse. Um, first of all, Bethlehem. We know Bethlehem from the last couple of incidents in the book of Judges, and some bad things happened in and around Bethlehem. And so Ruth is now going to be a contrast, going to be a little light from Bethlehem after the darkness of what happened to the person from Bethlehem, the Levite, and all of the stuff in the last book. But we realize, or we see in this first section, in the days when the judges ruled. So this tells us that Ruth is sometime during the time of the judges. We don't know exactly when. We don't know which judges. We are going to find out that it will be during a time when there was peace between Israel and Moab, because that's where Naomi goes uh, and her husband. They go to Moab. So this has to be at a time when there's peaceful relations, which maybe would have put this around the time after Ehud defeated King Eglon of Moab and that there was a time of peace, maybe. It's impossible to date it with precision, and the author doesn't really give us much to go on. But it says when the judges ruled, so during this time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. This is something that if Israel's being faithful, God promises in the covenant there will be no famine in the land. He promises rain for their crops. He promises food in abundance. So this tells us that this is during a time, this famine is part of what we've just spent a year reading through, or half a year, the book of Judges. This was one of those low cycles when Israel turned away and God sent judgment upon them and withheld His blessing from the land. And one of those covenant curses was there was famine in the land. And so... We're used to um, this, you know, like we get food a lot. You can go into any soup kitchen if you're homeless and get a free meal. You can walk into a convenience store and get a piece of pizza for a dollar. Like we are not used to famine unless you come from an area that has experienced famine, which I don't know if anybody in here has, but most of us haven't. We can't wrap our minds around the concept of what famine can do to people. Um, you can look at, if you remember in the 80s in Ethiopia, the famine crisis there, um, some of the places in the world that face famine today, a couple of years back in the Sudan, South Sudan region, there was massive famine. Um, there's, there are places where famine brings people to the end of their rope. I mean, it's, it's the worst fate that you can imagine as a people. There's nothing to eat. There's no food. You know, everything in our life Everything in our life revolves around getting two things, food and sex. I mean, really, boil all human existence down to its core, and that's what it's about, getting food and getting sex. So you can have children and carry on. (laughs) And so when, when famine hits, it strikes at the core of who people are. And, and it's something that is utterly debilitating to the point where people will flee. People will walk across deserts. People will hop on a rickety raft from Cuba and try to sail to Miami. 
or from North Africa and try to sail to Greece. People will do anything they can when there's a famine. During times of famine in the ancient world, people would boil their sandals so they could eat the leather that had been softened. They would take bark and scrape it off trees and boil it in water just to get nutrients from that tree bark. There's places today in sub-Saharan Africa where they make mud cakes, literally eating mud just to give their stomach a feeling of fullness. But they're literally eating mud with no nutritional value whatsoever. But it's just because of the pain, the hunger pains are so much. So we don't want to underestimate and we don't want to paint a rosy picture. It's not like, you know, uh, Naomi and Elimelech just said, well, we're going to go on a vacation. Or, oh, we don't like our job here. We're going to get a new job in a new town. You know, it's not like that. When people immigrate to a foreign land because of famine, they are at the end of their rope. There's nothing else to do. And especially in the ancient world. This is before there were visas and customs officials and airline flights and housing centers and, and public assistance. There was none of that. This was just you take whatever you can carry and you go through the desert and you hope that you come out the other side alive. And that's what they were doing. So the, the, de- the sense of desperation just in this one verse is something that when we put ourselves back into the mind of the ancient Near East audience, we can hopefully get a better understanding of how desperate and how driven this family was. And they leave Bethlehem and Judah. That's because there's another Bethlehem. Uh, it's not in Judah. So this is telling us this is Bethlehem, the one that we know of today. And they leave Bethlehem. And the irony is the name Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, house of bread, house of food. That's the irony. And so they leave the house of food because there is no food. And they go to Moab. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Moab was where Israel was not supposed to um, intermingle. Moabites were not allowed for ten generations to enter into the assembly of the Lord. Uh, You can read this back in the Torah. We studied this before in the book of Numbers. The Moabites had led Israel astray. The Moabites had been a thorn in their side. The Moabites had come from this ancestral relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, back in Genesis. So Moab, not clean, not holy, not righteous. And that's where they go. Today, you can make the journey from Bethlehem to Moab in maybe an hour or so by car. Uh, With checkpoints, it'll be longer. But you, um, it's not very far. It's not a long distance but it is on foot and you have to cross the Jordan Valley and it's into what is today modern Jordan and that's where they are they leave Bethlehem and they go into Moab the man's name was Elimelech his wife's name Naomi and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem Judah and they went to Moab to live there so this is giving us background of this family so Elimelech Naomi, they have two sons, Machan and Kilion. Now the names Machan and Kilion are uh, not great names, and this tells you how desperate these times were. Sometimes you would name your child after what you hoped, and sometimes you would name your child after the reality that you experience. And so there are names in the Bible that are hopeful, and there are names in the Bible that are tragic. Uh, these are tragic names. Machan means um, sick or sickly, and Kilion means faint or um, frail. So this lets you know just the, the situation in which they found it so desperate they named their children sick and frail. And so they leave and they go to Moab. So 
verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. So it went from bad to worse. Now she's a widow and she's got two sons. But her sons are adults by this time. They married Moabite women. One named Orpah and the other named Ruth. We don't really know what the names Orpah and Ruth mean because they're not Hebrew in origin because they're Moabites. Uh, some say Orpah means the, the back of the neck because she, when she leaves and turns her face the other direction, uh, they say that there's a relationship there. Uh, maybe, don't know. Ruth, some people have said it comes from a name that means friendship. Others have said no because you have to take out a letter that's not there. And All these commentators, basically nobody really knows. We just know that that's their names, Orpah and Ruth. This is also where Oprah got her name, by the way. Oprah's mom mistook this and mixed it up and read it as Oprah and named her daughter Oprah. That's just a little fun tidbit. Uh, I don't even remember where I saw that. I think Oprah said it somewhere. But anyway, yeah. So after they had lived, so they married Moabite women, uh, Orpah and Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, so 10 years in Moab, both Machan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons or her husband. So now, she's not just a widow, she's also lost her two children to death. Worst fate of any parent, obviously. The fear of every parent is that they'll bury their child. Uh, She had to bury two after burying her husband in a foreign land with nobody there. And so within five verses, all of the men have been wiped out of the story. And now for the rest of the book, until Boaz comes along, this is going to be a woman's world, a woman's perspective, and the story of these women and their relationship. But this is the level of destitution, again, we can't fathom it because we live in a culture that has safety nets and that has social programs and has, you know, meal delivery that churches do and uh, visitations and all this kind of stuff. Again, imagine yourself in the ancient world when something like this happens. You've got nothing. You have nothing. So, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, so news got out. During this time of the judges, there had been the downward cycle, and now it's a time of faithfulness. Israel has come back to the covenant. We saw this cycle throughout the judges. We don't know which judge this was during, but uh, there's a time of faithfulness, and God had withdrawn the famine, and now there was once again food in Bethlehem. The house of bread was now full again. And so that news makes it to Moab that the famine is gone. When she heard that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Now this is, that's just an interesting little tidbit because if you've been reading through in the Hebrew Bible, the phrase that describes where you come from is Beit Av, house of your father, or father's house. That's been the phrase everywhere all throughout the first six, seven books of the Bible has been house of the father or father's house. We've seen it multiple times in the study throughout the Old Testament. This is different. She says, go back to the house of your mother. So we don't know if that means that her father's dead or if this is one of those examples of this being from the perspective of women. And this being like a feminine story in the Bible, giving their point of view, the house of your mother, rather than the house of your father. Because the men of the story have been removed. 
And so now it's, it's an interesting little thing, but every commentator notes is like, huh, that's not the phrase. That's not the normal Hebrew phrase. It's, it's, it's a specifically used house of the mother. And what meaning there could be in that, uh, you can look for what different commentators say, but it's just an interesting feminine touch there in this story of these faithful women whose house will be built up. By the end of the story, Naomi's house will be built up. Not Naomi's husband. He's dead. He's not coming back. But her house will still continue on through God's faithfulness. And that's what this book is a story of. This is the story of God being faithful and taking care of Naomi in spite of overwhelming odds against her and through the actions of a number of people. But she tells her two daughter-in-laws, go back. Go back to your family, your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord show kindness. That word kindness, you can circle it if you want, because that's the word chesed. We've seen chesed over and over and over in the Bible. There's no English translation for it, so every time it's translated differently in a lot of Bibles. But chesed, it means faithfulness, steadfast devotion, covenant commitment, unmerited grace, attachment that's undeserved. There's no English word for chesed. And so in this sense, kindness isn't like, oh, let me help you across the road. Oh, let me cut your grass. Oh, let me. It's not like kindness like that. It's like devotion. And she's saying, may the God of Israel, may my God, in this foreign land, show you covenant devotion because of what you have shown to my family through marriage and through your, your coming into relationship with us. So it's a very cool uh, blessing that she gives or, or, or desire that she expresses. Verse 9, May the Lord grant, each of you, grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In other words, may you not live out your lives as widows. You're still young enough. You can find another husband here in Moab. So don't come back with me. I'm going back to Bethlehem empty-handed with no uh, immediate family, no husband, no children. I'm going back to nothing. I'll have food in my stomach. That's it. You can stay here. Maybe you'll find another husband. That's her whole goal for these women because she doesn't want them to be like her. She doesn't want them to be widowed and barren or at least destitute with no offspring. The whole goal in the ancient world for women was to bring forth people that would carry on your name, bring forth children. And this has been cut off from them in this instance. So she's pleading with them, be, be sensible. Don't come back with me. I can't give you anything. I can give you nothing. You will be like I've been these past 10 years. You'll be a foreigner in a foreign land. So you stay here with your people and remarry and and live your life. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? She's talking about leveret marriage. When the husband dies, then it's up to the brother of the dead husband to marry and to raise up children for that dead husband. We've seen leveret marriage in the Torah. And that's what she's referring to here. She's like, why are you coming with, I can't even, I'm, that ship has sailed. I'm not having any more kids. So you're not, there's no use for you to stay in the family. There's nothing you can get from being with me, is what she's telling them. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. 
Here she echoes Job in Job 4-5 when Job blames, says, God has done this to me. Now Naomi, like we said, she's like a female Job. She's saying, I've lost everything. God's hand has gone out against me. I don't know what I've done, but something to make God angry. And, and so he has taken everything from me. Why do you want to join me in this? At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. So Orpah was like, okay, I will. But Ruth clung to her. And it's not the word cling, it's the word cleave. It's the word be united, dabak, to, to unify with her. It's the word that describes the first man and the first woman in the garden. Not in the sense of sexuality, but in the sense of that the man will leave his husband and father and be joined to, cling to his wife. This is a covenant commitment. Not between husband and wife, but now between mother, or mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Gentile and Jew. This is a covenant relationship. And Ruth is, is clinging to, is cleaving, is, is joining together in, in the full sense of family with Naomi. She is uniting with her as a family. It's such an intimate and a strong word. Some out there scholars have said, oh, this is clear. They must have had a, an intimate relationship. And so they point to this as an example of lesbianism in the Bible. And they point to David and Jonathan as an example of uh, homosexuality in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. None of that's true in the context. It's, that's a silly argument. But the thing that they do get right is the level of intimacy in terms of commitment that Ruth experiences or shows to Naomi. Not in terms of sexuality, not in terms of any kind of uh, romantic relationship, but in terms of familial commitment. This is the same level of intimacy that you see in marriage in the Bible. So you want to make sure that we're reading it correctly and not reading later stuff into it and certainly not reading modern agendas into it. But she is uniting with Naomi and her people. Look, as they went to go, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Verse 16, this is the heart of the book. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So this is the moment. If you want to pick one, this is when Ruth is saved. Ruth has entered into the covenant, just like the mixed multitude of Gentiles that came out of Egypt at the Exodus. Ruth has united, has cast her lot with Naomi, and Naomi's God. And that's the key. It's not just your people will be my people. Your people might be my people. Your God will be my God. That's turning from the idolatry of Moabites, which Moabites, remember, they worship Chemosh. Chemosh was the God that thrived on child sacrifice and other debauchery. Chemosh was the God of Moab. And Ruth is leaving that and being united with Yahweh, the God of Israel. So at this moment, Ruth is no longer a Gentile. She's no longer a Moabite. Yes, ethnically she's a Gentile. Yes, culturally she has Moabite practices. She may look Moabite if there's any kind of feature differences, although there probably weren't. But she is no longer a foreigner or an alien among Israel. She enters into the people of Israel, at least in the eyes of God. 
And when they get back and throughout this story, you're going to see just how fully she is brought in to God's people. So much so that of the four women named in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, Ruth is one of them. Ruth the Moabite, the Gentile. Even here in the pages of the Old Testament, membership in the people of Israel is not based on your ethnicity. It's based on your covenant acceptance. And that's what we see here with Ruth. Is she takes on, she, puts, she casts her lot in <clears throat> with Naomi and with her people and with her God. And that's the main point. Verse 19, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women claimed, can this be Naomi? Remember, she's been gone like over ten years. And, and she also left with a husband and two sons. And now she's come back with this foreigner trailing along with her. Empty other than that. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara means bitter. Mara is the place in the uh, book of uh, Exodus where the Israelites complained because the water, they couldn't drink it. And so they named the place Mara, meaning bitterness. That's what it means, bitter, just ugh, undrinkable, um, unquenchable. And that's what she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm, I've been robbed of everything. I'm now, a, I left a woman with two sons and a husband. I've come back a bitter old woman. That's the, the import of this name change. Is she's a bitter old woman at this point, in her own words. I went away full, verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You can hear Job in her lament. God's done it. Yes, there was famine. Yes, we know that the famine happened because of the people's disobedience. But from her perspective... It's just everything in the world is under God's control. And so she gives voice to what we all feel at times when we're suffering, but we're too afraid to say it if we're good church people, is that God's done this to me. Now, theologically, we know that evil is not something that God has done, but we also know that nothing happens apart from God's will, and we have to hold those two things in balance. And when we're suffering, sometimes we lose that balance, and we end up tipping into Job or Naomi territory where we blame God. And we need people to kind of pull us back and say, whoa, 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 careful. Don't blame God. There's other reasons. Even if we don't know the reasons, there's other reasons that this is happening. <clears throat> but we also not, need to not uh, squash people's uh, emotional pain by saying, oh, no, you're, you're wrong about it. God didn't do this. Everything's fine. You just need to change your perspective. You just need to think happy thoughts, manifest the universe to bring about a good whatever, blah, 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 blah. None of that. That's like salt in the wound when somebody's suffering. You know, when somebody's just buried their baby that died suddenly, any of those words are slaps in the face. And so we want to be careful that we don't make it worse in our attempts to make it better. But we let people let people give voice to their anger with God. God's big enough for us to be mad at Him. He is okay with people blaming Him for stuff that He didn't do. He's okay with that. He can handle it. As long as the people doing it are doing it from within the context of a relationship with Him, not as an excuse to push Him away. And so we see, even though Naomi has this not correct view of God, she is still in relationship with God and she's still a faithful Israelite. 
She's a light in the dark period of the judges, where even when things are as bad as they can be, nationally things were as bad as they could be, and now family-wise, individually, things are as bad as they can be. And yet even in that, she gives voice to thoughts that maybe aren't true about God, but her pain is very real, and God doesn't send somebody to rebuke her. Don't you dare talk about God that way. Right? There's none of that. Ruth in this section leaves and goes into that with her. She does not, Ruth cannot fix Naomi's problem. At least she doesn't think she can. And she's never given a promise. Remember Abraham, this is where Ruth's fate to me is even more impressive than Abraham's fate. And I know that may sound blasphemous to some of you, but I'm going to stand by it. Because Abraham had a direct encounter with God, and God said, go to the land I'll show you, and if you do this, I'll do these things for you that are amazing. And it took years and years and years, and he never saw a lot of that, and it would ups and downs. So yeah, he had crazy amounts of faith. But Ruth did the same thing without the promise from God. Without any promise that God would give her blessing and health and wholeness and wellness. In fact, the only thing she was promised if she went with Naomi was that she would be destitute with Naomi. And she still went with her because of that covenant faithfulness to her. And she said, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you die, I'll die. We're in this together. In your pain and your suffering, guess what? I'm going to sit with you in it. And when people are going through pain and suffering, sometimes that is the one thing that we can do to help alleviate that is to just sit with them. Just suffer with them. Just experience emotion with them. You know the word compassion? It comes from calm, which means together with, and pathos, which means to suffer. Compassion literally means suffering with somebody. And that's, that's where it came from, at least. That's what it means now, just to show compassion. But, but where it originally started was to suffer along with. And that's what Ruth does. She goes to this foreign land with no promise of blessing, no promise of your offspring will be like the stars in the sky, no promise of those who bless you, I'll bless, those who curse you, I'll curse. All the stuff that Abraham had, she doesn't have any of that, and yet she still goes. And throughout the book, she is a model of faithfulness. She is the epitome of the Proverbs 31 woman, and she's a Moabite. She's a Moabite convert. That's what's so mind-blowing about this whole story. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was astir because of them. They exclaimed, can it be Mara? She said, don't call me Mara. I'm bitter. Verse 22 so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And there's a little teeny tiny hint that God's going to turn something around. As the barley harvest was beginning. The whole rest of the book's going to take place between these harvest times. That's why Ruth is red when it's red during the feast uh, Shavuot, the, the uh, Pentecost that celebrates the bringing in the harvest. So just we, we get a glimpse. It's a little, it's a very well done literary hint that something great is coming. The harvest is beginning. There's going to be more. There's going to be the barley harvest was the first harvest, and then the wheat harvest was the later one. And at the end of the harvesting, when everything's brought in, we're going to see that it coincides perfectly with God rebuilding and refilling what he had emptied in Naomi's life because she is going to reap a harvest more than she can imagine. Her household is going to continue. She's not going to die with her. 
And it's actually going to continue into the dynasty of King David. But all of that's in the future from her perspective. She doesn't know any of it. She just knows she's poor. She's a widow. Her sons are dead. Her line has come to an end. And she's back in her hometown. But they're still poor. And that's all she has. But now she has another mouth to feed. And that's where we end chapter 1. Next week... We'll look at the events that take place. God's not done. He's working behind the scenes and He's got something in store. Um, so come back for that. But for now, we got to go. Have a great week.